Welcome to Media Roots Radio. I'm Abby Martin. This is Robbie Martin. Today, we're excited to be joined by Yasha Levine, author of the book Surveillance Valley, The Secret Military History of the Internet. Yasha has discussed this book at length on this podcast with Robbie, an episode that you can listen to on our archive. In September of 2019, Yasha launched a newsletter on Substack called Immigrants as a Weapon that explores the weaponization of nationalism and immigrant communities. It's a very fascinating read that I recommend everyone check out. And I'm really excited to have Yasha on the program. Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on again, Yasha. I should just say for the audience that Yasha's appearance on Media Roots Radio uh, for his Surveillance Valley book uh, was the most publicity uh, Media Roots Radio ever got. It somehow got a mention in Politico, which was which was pretty cool. We broke what? through. Really? I didn't even know that. <laughs> you didn't? I didn't. I didn't send that to you. I don't, yeah, I don't the, think so. The only so time, just... the only time mainstream media decided to um, to uh, mention Media Roots Radio, that was it was really surprising. So what they say. Oh, they just like said um, it was like roundup of things you might have missed in the last two weeks, recommended viewing or something. And it was just like a list of like five things. And our our episode was one of them. So oh, that's great. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. That's interesting. That no, was a great it was actually probably the best um, interview that I did about the book. Oh, that's uh, cool. Because we yeah, just because we went we, you know, it was we were going on for a couple of hours, I think. Right. And um, it was like two and a half. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I was I was. um I was sort of in, I was in the middle of my of my book tour and I was very I was just I was sick I, j- I had just come down with or I was already coming down off a fever from a fever and I was pretty lucid in a weird in this kind of weird way um, um, I think at least it's, uh, and so yeah it was nice I remember that that was two years ago man I know and, and uh, just wow. I think a, a few months ago maybe it was like six months ago you and I met um, in San Francisco and you sort of you, you described in detail to me this series that you were planning on writing. I think, believe it was even before you started writing any of it. Uh, and I was extremely intrigued by the premise of how the U.S. government and sort of the propaganda system in the United States and in the West uh, simultaneously uses immigrants as fear-mongering tools as well as sort of heroic and useful tools to promote Western values and imperialism. So it was it was interesting you were trying to tell me how both of these narratives have been used by various aspects of the ruling and political class here in the United States at different times and I you know I'm sort of vaguely familiar with that concept but um uh, I was extremely fascinated by your series and just from a personal point of view and I want to mention mention this a little later in the podcast but the but the animated film American Tale for some reason was the first thing to come into my mind as an example of sort of what you were trying to illustrate in this series. Um, and we'll go into that a little later, but that, that was an interesting example from my childhood. That was sort of my childhood introduction to this concept uh, that you're writing about. And Yasha, I read the whole series. It was really, really great. I'm really enjoying it. And it's just really interesting. I mean, you're a Soviet Jewish immigrant who's lived in the U.S. for a long time. You've lived on, you know, in multiple cities in the U.S. And I can only imagine the tropes and Russia hysteria currently permeating throughout our political and social culture are quite infuriating for someone who is Russian. Um, what inspired you to start this new project about the weaponization of immigrants and how does your story fit into it? Um, yeah, well, you know, it's, it's the weaponization of immigrants. Yeah, like Robbie uh, said, you know, there's, there's in America and especially in liberal circles and uh, progressive circles, um, 
you know, the way that immigrants are talked about um, are usually as, as, as victims, right? As victims of a kind of a conservative America or sort of right-wing America. And, um, um, and what isn't really talked about at all is this other side of, of um, sort of immigrant communities in America. Um, you know, nation, America is a nation, truly is a nation of immigrants. You know, no one, no one who, I mean, everyone came here from somewhere else. Uh, and it's sort of, there these been waves uh, of, of immigration. And every, uh, and every wave that comes to America is essentially used in some kind of way. Uh, it's either used for, you know, cheap labor, right? And, and to, you know, they're, they're demonized on one level uh, by, 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 and, and, and sort of uh, a lot of problems are dumped on immigrant shoulders, like they are frequently, um, you know, blamed for everything that's going wrong in America and are kind of used to deflect uh, political criticism of the elite onto the, sort of onto the backs of these newcomers who don't have any power. But then there's this other side to it, which is that uh, America is full of immigrants, you know, from, from all over the world. And immigrants that, are, that come from countries uh, with which America is in conflict with or wants to destabilize or wants to uh, sort of overthrow a, a government of, right? They're also weaponized and used, but not in a negative way, but in a sort of a positive way. They're upheld and they are given almost like a privileged position in American society. You know, as, as, an, as an immigrant, um, as a Soviet immigrant, so I, I left when I was, um, I left when I was eight and by the time that I came to America, I was nine. So we spent almost a year in refugee camps um, in Austria and in Italy. And we left in 1989 and we came to the States in 1990. You know, and as a kid, like as an immigrant kid, just as an immigrant, period, I think, in America, it's a very strange kind of mentality or, or um, a consciousness that you have. I mean, because, you know, America essentially starts from the moment you got here, right? Like there is, that's what you think America is. There, you, you kind of have a don't, you don't have a history of America. You don't have parents or grandparents uh, or family members that are older that come from a different time in, in, a, in a country to, to sort of put things into context so you know we came basically at the end of the you know at the end of uh the bush presidency the first bush presidency right uh, right at the uh, you know before the, right right at the start of the gulf war and that was sort of what we thought the baseline of america was right so the sort of this kind of neoliberalization this neoliberal america that was really be- uh taking hold and so and I, I looked around and i knew that i was an immigrant right but i knew that i was also kind of a different immigrant i wasn't an immigrant like immigrants from uh, South America or from Mexico. I wasn't an immigrant like immigrants even from the Middle East that, that I felt like I knew that I had a sort of a, some strange sort of privilege. I wasn't, I couldn't, I could never really quite put my finger on it. Um, and I, you know, I didn't really think about it until much later, but I realized that was something that was in the back of my mind. I was an immigrant, but not like other immigrants. And I wanted to understand at some point I, I, I wanted to you know, I wanted to understand why that was, and I be- it began to make a bit of sense as I got older, and especially after I started becoming a journalist, and and and, and learning about the history of, of you know, the the Cold War and American uh, and, and and Soviet relations, and realizing that I was, that we were privileged. Um, you know, we received refugee status. We had, um, you know, the you know very powerful Jewish community in America, you know, uh, basically backing us up, uh, and and helping us transition uh, f- uh, into American society. Uh, we were immediately allowed to go on, on welfare and, and, and things like that. So it wasn't something, it, w- it wasn't as much of a struggle as, as for other immigrant groups that I, that I, and so I began to understand that the reason we were treated so in a, this privileged way was because we were useful to America uh, and to the American empire. We, you know, we were, uh, our sort of, our, the, this, this initiative to, 
save us from the Soviet Union, to save uh, Jews from the Soviet Union, was part of this uh, specific program to destabilize the Soviet Union um, in the 70s. It began in the 70s and, and ramped up in the 80s um, as a way of destabilizing it. And so we were this kind of, um, um, you know, we, we had this privileged position because we were useful to American power. Um, and I, I began to understand that as I got older, and then I realized that we, you know we weren't just we weren't uh, unique in that sense in America. We were part of a larger um, you know set of initiatives, or just a way of a way of governing, a way of doing your running your geopolitics, where you weaponize key uh, groups, um, uh, ethnic groups, and nationalist groups uh, in different countries, and you weaponize them in order to to destabilize or to kind of attack other countries, the countries that where these groups come from. Um, and you can sort of see it in all sorts of immigrant communities in America, you know, starting from like, uh, I don't know, like, you know, Cuban emigres, uh, you know, emigres from the Venezuela. Uh, of course, you know, in L.A., there are a bunch of people from Iran who are, you know, still supportive of the Shah. And there's these key groups uh, all over America from pretty much every part of the country that America has, you know, has some sort of conflict with um, that are activated and used... Um, in, some, in, in various ways against those countries and in, 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 in ways that further American power abroad or at least attempt to further American power abroad. And you talk about how neoconservatives in America were using this Jewish nationalist movement that was growing in the Soviet Union uh, in the 60s and 70s to exploit and undermine the Soviet Union and basically enlist full-spectrum warfare on the country. Um, but it wasn't just the Jewish population. Of course, as you mentioned, going back to 1948, immigrants from everywhere were being trained by the CIA in, in, in a lot of ways in proxy organizations to fight against communism. Can you elaborate more on this program? Um, yeah. So, I mean, just to start with your first, the first part of your question, so about the, this program to weaponize Soviet Jews against the Soviet Union. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's an interesting program that has these – it's an interesting – uh, part of the history because it has different components to it. There's a grassroots component to it, which uh, emerged um, truly a kind of a grassroots um, nationalist kind of national awakening among Soviet Jews um, in the 60s uh, and then really got going in the 70s. Um, that, that was there, you know, and that wasn't like, you know, created by, by America or by an outside power. So that was something very, very real, although it was fairly small. Um, Soviet Jews who grew up completely secular, completely Soviet, you know, were frequently born right after uh, the end of the end of World War II. So they grew, grew up in this almost kind of post-war boom. Um, you know, the Soviet Union also had its kind of baby boomers, uh, in, some, in some ways analogous to to, to America's baby boomers. Um, and they grew up, you know, without an identity, essentially, right? They didn't grow up Jewish. Uh, they didn't really know what, you know, being a Jew was. There were Soviet citizens, Soviet people like, a lot of other Soviet people from you know that that, that come from all over the Soviet Union, and, and it's a very multi-ethnic um, society. And so, in the '60s, particularly after you know Israel started kind of kicking, you know, really uh, flexing its muscles, and and won um, won in the 1967 war in the Six Day War, uh, and became this almost like a like a like a uh, a lightning rod for Jews all around the world that suddenly found their sort of Jewish identity. Um, in, in the Soviet Union, it was the same thing. And so people started being curious about, you know, being, being Jews, what it meant, and kind of realizing that, hey, we're different. You know, we're, we, actually have, we have actually a cooler history. And it, 
it was a way also for people to express their anti-Soviet sort of ideas or positions by saying that, hey, we're not like the rest of these Soviet people. We're, we actually have a whole history. We have thousands of years of, of, of nationalist history. And, and so that was sort of emerging, right? And Israel uh, was interested in using that as well, interested in using that because Israel saw um, the huge Jewish population in the Soviet Union as a demographic weapon that it could use for, to its own ends, right, in order to bolster its population and sort of pad out its population against uh, the Palestinians because Palestinians you know, were, had superior numbers in terms of populations, and so that was a big worry for uh, Zionist leadership. And so they saw and they, they looked at Jews in the Soviet Union as their secret weapon and were really drooling uh, looking at them because they wanted to bring them all to, to, to Israel. Um, and, you know, it would bolster sort of a Zionist claims to, to the land, right? And at the same time, so, it, so, the Soviet, so Israel had like a special um, intelligence agency that was created specifically to fire up the grassroots and to really get nationalism going in the Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, with, they were importing literature, Jewish literature, Jewish history books, uh, like Hebrew uh, language books so people could learn, learn Hebrew on their own in little circles, you know, underground circles that people would host in their apartments and stuff like that. So well, Israel was engaged in that. And at the same time, there was a kind of a movement in America, also a grassroots movement among American Jews who were turning uh, right wing in the 1960s and sort of turning away from their kind of leftist and sort of progressive orientation and becoming much more centrist and, um, you know, and, 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 and liberal, right, in, in, the, in the kind of right-wing sense of that word. And so they were, in America, there was also a Jewish nationalist awakening among the sort of, uh, you know, um, white-collar Jewish uh, class uh, in America who also grew up not really knowing what, what it meant to be Jewish and were discovering their Jewish identity. And so they began to see the Soviet Jews as like, um, you know, a, a project for themselves, like a nationalist project. Uh, they began to realize that Jews didn't um, do anything during the Holocaust. You know, they kind of just it were, it were much more worried about integrating into American society and kind of almost like, you know, sort of burying their Jewish identity. And so to them, to this, to this, to this baby boomer uh, generation, um, that had sort of been integrated into American society, you know, Soviet Jews and saving Soviet Jews became this really big movement. Um, and so uh, this emerging new conservative movement in, in, in America saw this, these things as, you know, as an opportunity, right? They saw that the, the, this growing Jewish nationalism in the Soviet Union, this grassroots movement, and this growing Jewish nationalism in America as things that could be used in order to destabilize the Soviet Union. And so you had, um, you know, uh, um, actually some of the early neoconservatives neo like uh, um, uh, Wolfowitz and uh, Richard Pearl uh, came out of this. I mean, they were actually instrumental in kind of in, in crafting the first sanctions against the Soviet Union that were built on, um, you know, built on free immigration, free immigration for, for, for Jews out of the Soviet Union. Uh, and so if, if the Soviet Union wouldn't let them out, the Soviet Jews, then, you know, the sanctions kicked in and the trade sanctions kicked in. And so uh, this earliest sort of, uh, um, you know, personalities that, came, that, that, that became, became the sort of the poster boys of the new conservative movement actually came out 
of this attempt to weaponize Jewish nationalism in both America and in the Soviet Union against the Soviet Union. And so that started in the 70s, uh, and you know, it went on through the 80s and ended really when the Soviet Union collapsed. Um, Yasha, so it's interesting that there's this confluence of, um, and I'm a little bit familiar with the sort of the neoconservatives origin story from this time period, but I'm specifically interested in uh, which famous neoconservatives that are living or dead um, that you know of besides Don Kagan. He's, he's the only one I know of that was, was actually sort of using his immigrant identity as a Lithuanian Jewish immigrant um, to sort of bolster a lot of his rhetoric. I'm, learning, I'm just curious, are there any other neoconservatives that are, you know, sort of famous now uh, that, that fit that same template that have sort of a, you know, they were an immigrant into the Soviet Union or a Jewish immigrant, and they have, you know, um, this sort of fuel or, or, or origin story for themselves to bolster their rhetoric as well? I guess Madeleine Albright would be one that, um, I, mean, I, I don't know if she, I guess she's a new conservative by default, but uh, <laughs> I, mean, yeah, uh, I mean, I know Madeleine Albright has definitely was, was used her, um, you know, because her family fled, uh, and her, her family's experience sort of under, under, under communism or, you know, as, as, as a way of to bolster her moral position. Um, and sort of moral imperative to destroy the Soviet Union and take out the Soviet Union. I know, I know. I'm pretty sure there's others. I, I actually, it's, a good, it's actually a great question. Well, I know the there's a couple of people that are writing now. I mean, I don't know if they would be considered neocons, but like Miriam Elder, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, she pushes a she has pushed a lot of neoconservative propaganda in the past, and she often uses that aspect of her identity to sort of bolster her rhetoric. But I mean, that's probably not the best example because she's kind of a small cog in the wheel. But yeah, if there's any anyone else that comes to mind, I'm I'm just curious. Yeah, I can tell you. I'll I'll I'll, I'll sort of let that you know <laughs> let kind of uh, run in the background here in my brain while we think about. It. I mean, I know that. I mean, most most um, you know Jews that came from the Soviet Union that have any sort of position in media or political uh, circles will use their identity. Right and the fa- and and the discrimination against Jews in the Soviet Union as a way of sort of arguing uh, how bad, of course, you know, the Soviet Union was, and, and sort of to bolster um, arguments that you know anything that came out of that country or that that, that region uh, was bad and was evil, right, and totalitarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, and of course, f- frequently now they connected to to Russia, right, because uh, and 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 used that as a sort of a, as a, as a way of. Uh, you know, transferring essentially all, everything that the Soviet Union did to Russia and, and bolstering their... So I see that all the time. I mean, m- most of them do that. Um, uh, Julia Yoffe does that. Um, I mean, it's, uh, it's just so common that it's almost passes without, um, without any notice. I know that Masha Gessen does that all the time. So I'm just trying to think of like that, at least some of the journalists. I mean, they're not that many... Um, but they Soviet have a big Jewish influence. Journalist. I mean, these people you're naming, even though they may seem small, like small potatoes, they do have a big influence because they're seen as more credible, you know, because they were from Russia uh, and they have this sort of special knowledge. But as you just said, they're transferring their knowledge about the Soviet Union as basically as they perceived it as children to the current version of the Russian government, which doesn't really apply mm-hmm. in any significant way. And maybe I'm wrong about that. I mean, if you have a comment on that. I mean, I don't know. It's, you know, it's, of course, it's a different country. It's a completely different ideology that governs it. Um, 
you know, it's uh, uh, most of the people in, in the government are anti-communist. I mean, even the communists are anti-communist, you know, so in, in, in Russia, <laughs> even the Communist Party is, you know, it's in, a communist, communist in name only, um, <laughs> um, you know, in this much the same way that, you know, the Democratic Party is a democratic no, I mean, I, I again, we, we'd have to analyze what exactly with, with the, the claim that they're making. You know, I yeah. think that they, the stuff is used. They, they kind of they 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 use a pretty thick brush when they when they make these claims. It's just that they talk about uh, you know the cruelness of the of the Soviet regime and how poorly treated minorities, um, and you know, and how they had to flee the Soviet Union because. It was so horrible and uh, it was so repressive. I mean, in the reality, if we're going to you know, talk about what was actually the repress- repression against Jews in the Soviet Union, it's fairly mild, you know, um, in, in the sense that, like, first of all, it was very class-based. So if you were a Jewish family or, you know, you had connections to any kind of power, uh, of any, any kind of connections, you felt anti-Semitism a lot less. If, if 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 at all, I mean, there's sort of everyday fe- sort of anti-Semitism and racism that exists in the Soviet Union. It's not like it's just you know there's people are much more open about the racism actually you know and like we'll use racist we'll, we'll say racist jokes and kind of mess around and talk you know talk in sort of racialized language about things, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're being discriminated against. You know what I mean? It's like, it's not, it's not as hidden in that culture. People don't hide it. Right. But um, if you are kind of middle, Soviet middle class or even working class, you feel the anti-Semitism a lot more. So there will be quotas in, in, in the most elite universities, right? For Jews. Um, there will be certain jobs that Jews are just uh, not given unless you have connections. Uh, you know, jobs that are, you know, for instance, jobs that have any kind of travel beyond the borders of the Soviet Union, you're going to be rejected from most likely. And that's what kind of happened to my, my parents and my dad in particular. He is a brilliant guy. Um, you know, he was basically quoted out of a, out of a university, out of a good university. Uh, he had to go to like an institute and become, you know, study to be a college teacher, a uh, college professor. Um, and even with his degree that he got, uh, which is he was to you know, teach physics in the English language, he was supposed to be allowed to travel to, um, um, I can't remember what country uh, um, um, that the Soviet Union had to deal with. Um, it was an African country. Um, I don't remember exactly uh, now, but he was you know, barred from going there, even though that was, that's why he was being trained, that's what he was being trained to do, to go abroad and teach physics sort of under this, program that the Soviet Union had where it sent teachers abroad um, uh, because he was a Jew and, and because they, were, they thought he is a f- secure flight risk, you know, that he's just going to stay behind. He's going he's gonna to just run away and he's going to... And, you know, and so, so, you know, that pissed him off because there was no reason he wasn't thinking about this. You know, he, he was just... He was, so, so opportunities were cut off to him and that actually turned him pretty, pretty hard against the Soviet Union, uh, which is understandable. Um, and so there's there's discrimination, but it isn't like people are being sent to gulags. I mean, under Stalin, especially after the war, um, uh, and like it, it was bad, you know. Uh, but after Stalin died, the anti-Semitism existed, but it was a, you know a kind of a it, it's sort of like the kind of you know you're maybe something something comparable to. Um, some of the, my, how minorities maybe get treated in, in America, you know, uh, so there, there's glass ceilings, there are sort of limits to what you can do, um, 
you know, they're unstated, but everyone understands why you're not get, you know, getting that job or why you're not getting the, into that university. Um, and just to be clear, I mean, I know that in America there were quotas on, on, on Jewish um, on, on, on Jewish students to universities. I mean, you know, Jews couldn't, go, couldn't even be members of some clubs, right, of some private clubs through the 60s even. So this kind of stuff didn't, wasn't just, you know, wasn't just, uh, didn't just happen in the Soviet Union. But so the re- repression against the Soviet Union, it, ex- they, it existed for sure. It existed against Jews. They, uh, there was some, uh, some discrimination, but it was blown way out of proportion. Uh, it was blown out of proportion in, in, in here in America by the, sort of, by the movement to save uh, Soviet Jews. And I was look, going through the archives and I saw you know, photos of these rallies that were in D.C. Uh, to save Soviet Jews. And you know, they're, they're carrying flags and posters where they have a swastika right next to a hammer and sickle. And it's just, you know, they're equating the way that Jews are being treated in the Soviet Union with the way that uh, you know, the Nazis treated Jews, which is, you know, completely insane. Um, <laughs> most, you know, Jews that didn't flee to the West or to, the, to America uh, from Europe and from Nazi-occupied Europe uh, during, before the war, I mean, they uh, survived because they fled to the Soviet Union. Um, and I know that Masha Gessen's family, for instance, fled for their Pol- Polish Jews, uh, very wealthy Polish Jews, and, and part of the family fled to to Moscow uh, right before the war and survived that way. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, to equate Jews uh, and the way, the way that Jews are being treated in the Soviet Union and the way that Jews are treated by Nazi Germany, you know, which tried to compl- uh, you know, genocide them and almost succeeded uh, is ridiculous. But that's the claims that, you know, a lot of um, Soviet Jews make uh, and they, uh, and they sort of, they try to, you know, uh, exaggerate, exaggerate the the, the 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 repression of Jews in in, in the Soviet Union to make a l- larger political points. You know, in, during, when the Soviet Union was still alive, of course, it was about sort of tarring the Soviet Union, and now it's being used against Russia uh, because it's seen as a kind of a you know as 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 a as a zombie as a kind of a Soviet zombie state, right? Come back to life under Putin. Well, it's interesting because you see a lot of think pieces and stuff conflating Nazism and communism today. And I never even thought about the current of how Jews were treated under the Soviet Union and how that's being weaponized to demonize communism today um, and how that all fits together. That's super interesting. And, and as you talked about, I mean, immigrants were being recruited from like the far right um, to fight against communism by these proxies from the CIA um, and this general program was essentially like the origin of Radio Liberty, Radio Free Europe, which still serve as these U.S. subversion propaganda in these areas. I mean, similarly, of course, to how Russia Today is used here, but Russia Today is totally unacceptable, whereas these stations are just totally normalized and accepted as just standard practices all over the world. Yeah, no. It, it, look, it, it, you know what's funny about all this stuff? It's everything's so mixed up uh, and mixed, confused, and, and and you know because like some of the people that helped set up uh, Radio Liberty and Radio Free Europe, I mean, they were Jews, uh, anti-communist Jews, um, and you know, and, and so they set up newsrooms that were um, you know staffed by Nazi collaborators and fascists of all kinds from all sorts from all over Europe, from the Caucasus, you know, like. It's it's so it's just it's a weird project, you know. And I think one of the, when you look at this, 
the, the, all these different programs and all these different ways that America weaponizes nationalism and, and, and immigrant communities in America is that ultimately everyone is w- w- an American essentially, right? And so, and everyone wants power. Everybody wants to succeed. Everybody wants to, you know, um, like uh, fit in. And 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 so you have these very strange kinds of alliances between, you know, uh, Jews who are criticizing the Soviet Union for the way that it's repressing its Jewish population while they're working with Nazi collaborators. And, and, and sometimes, you know, people who actually had a hand in murdering, you know, uh, Jews and mass murder of Jews in Eastern Europe. Uh, and so it's like, it, it, it doesn't seem to make sense other than, you know, like it's ideological on the one hand, you know, everyone is just has a common enemy, which is communism and the Soviet Union. But on the other hand, it's like everybody just trying to like, you know, have a good career. It's I think it's so somewhat somewhat as simple as that, and trying to like just fit in and 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 have some power and do something interesting with their lives. It's kind of it's kind of sad, but that's the sense that I get from it, you know. Um, and so yeah, look, uh, a lot of the why well, the reason why I'm interested in this in the origin story of these initiatives uh, to weaponize um, nationalism to weapon, weaponize immigrant communities in America that represent these nationalist movements um, is because. Almost, you know, like the entire sort of post-war um, American order, which is basically modern America, is sort of kind of intertwined with that, you know. And so a lot of these, uh, like you said, like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, and a lot of these um, American propaganda stations, you know, that are run by the government that target pretty much every every uh, you know point on the planet, um, you know, from, from Southeast Asia – uh, all of Asia, China, you know, Vietnam, Iran, um, uh, Yemen, <laughs> Cuba, Venezuela, uh, um, like they come out of these programs. And so they were set up as a, specifically as a way of w- sort of uh, using nationalism and nationalized identity and, and, and sort of sectarian identity of the various different groups that, that um, are encompassed by the Soviet Union, Right. Um, so, you know, the Soviet Union is this multi-ethnic state, and so you have pretty much every ethnicity uh, represented there, you know, sp- spanning from Europe all the way to, you know, to Japan, pretty much, right? Um, like, to use those groups as weapons as a way of kind of breaking up the sort of Soviet internationalism, all right, and Soviet multiculturalism. So you want to use Ukrainian nationalists in your radio stations to broadcast um, programs that inflame nationalist ideology among sort of U- Soviet Ukrainians, right? You want to do the same thing in Latvia. You want to do the same thing in Estonia. You want to do the same thing in Lithuania. You want to do it in Poland. You want to do it in um, in, in Yugoslavia. Uh, you want to, you know, you like fire up the Croatian fascists and their nationalist identity. You want to fire up the sort of the Serbian nationalist and their nationalist identity. So it like it, it's everywhere. Um, you know, and, and you, you want to do the same thing in China. You want to use some of these religious movements that have been popping up and sort of inflame them and use them as a way of sort of creating, you know, creating fractures within Chinese society and Chinese uh, domestic politics. Uh, you want to cause all these countries to crack down on these movements in, internally you, because the idea is that the more that uh, these countries are forced to repress their own citizens, their own people, the the more of like uh, pressure is going to build inside those countries, and eventually they're going to pop. 
right? It's the sort of the pressure cooker theory of international politics. And so all this stuff, the propaganda um, pro- programs and divisions that were created that are still active today, I mean, they're built on actually uh, that idea of using nationalism as, um, as a weapon and to injecting that into the Soviet Union, into communist societies um, to, to, to break things up. And, and so it's not a surprise that, you know, today, if you, if you actually look at like, let's say, I don't know, Ukrainian language, Radio Liberty, uh, their Twitter page, I mean, all the, they're like a PR service for World War II era fascist leaders. You know, like they're like celebrating every one of their birthdays. They're, you know, covering all the marches <laughs> that are happening in, in celebration of their birthdays and of all, you know, of all the anniversaries of these fascists. It's, it's pretty weird. But like, in order to understand why that's happening, you kind of have to go to the beginning and to understand the origin story of, of, of how America kind of started doing, doing this and, and using nationalism against Soviet internationalism. The really horrific and cynical plot, when you think about it, that, that America has done pretty much more than any other country to promote far-right ideologies. <laughs> it's pretty weird. Yeah, it's fucked up. I mean, and it's funny how people are, accuse Russia of being the, the biggest funder of the far-right. It's like... It's it's like wait Russia was isn't Russia like communist or something like isn't it Soviet like and and it just but it really yeah it's when you look at it it's been a consistent policy for now seventy five years um, yeah and, and and really it's kind of longer than that uh, because generally speaking America had always sided with kind of the right um, and 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 sort of the reactionary forces um, including. You know, including backing like white Russians, right? The pro pro um, sort of imperial Russians in the civil war, their civil war against the uh, the Bolsheviks and the Red Army back in like you know nineteen eighteen, um, and then you know America had like troops on the ground in Russia actually in nineteen eighteen, fighting against the Red Army and backing up the white Russians, and so it goes back further than that. Um, but really, yeah, the, it starts in 19, 1945, 1944, 1946, 1947. That's when this, the modern stuff that we're seeing um, really begins. And, 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 and it actually is, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, framework, a, a policy framework that's laid down through a series of um, you know, uh, presidential sort of orders and uh, uh, executive orders uh, and National Security Council memorandums and things like that, you know, the s- secret uh, memorandums that lay this stuff out. And we're sort of living in the aftermath of that. Uh, and we're seeing that play out, let's say, today in Ukraine or with NATO's support of uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and, and Estonia and sort of and, and their, 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 their coziness with the, the far right in those countries. Um, mm. And so um, you really kind of have to go back to the beginning to understand I don't know, to understand foreign policy and, and, how, and how this stuff is used right. uh, pretty much in every country, not just in Europe. But Yasha, I thought that, um, that the Duganist uh, conspiracy, the fascist Duganist conspiracy being exported by Russia was uh, causing all the fascism around the world, and, and including the Red-Brown alliance that, uh, that's plaguing the left right now. So <laughs> Yeah, I know, yeah. Yeah. It's, there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of reds, yeah, just Russia. I mean, America's just full of washing reds right now. Just <laughs> like a washing reds. Just nothing but reds everywhere. Yeah. Which is so fascinating just uh, just as an aside how much certain sectors of the left have glommed on to that theory that pretty much everyone who's ever been associated in any way with any Russian media outlet is part of some Duganist fascist conspiracy and yet that same sector of the left rarely talked about only maybe a few of them that i saw talked about 
the clear proof that a large part of the Ukrainian army, specifically the Azov Battalion, was overtly neo-Nazi and money from the U.S. government was going to them. Um, so that's just a peculiar thing. Of course, that was all written off originally as Russian propaganda until even Bellingcat had to start admitting that it was true, which I thought was an odd um, turnaround for him. Yeah, no, it's funny. <laughs> it, there's, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. I mean, there's actually a really great um, researcher that works for them. There's one guy that's amazing, and uh, that he focuses just on the Ukrainian sort of far right. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't really understand what that's all about. <laughs> um, it's like the one thing that they, but, but they, you know, I'll tell you what happens there. So, so there's this, in Bellingcat, there's, um, there's oh, this guy named Alexei. He's does great work. Um, and, and, and he doesn't like, he doesn't try to like blame everything on the Russians, but what happens is when Bellingcat does these reports frequently, they try to like pivot it, you know, like, like just recently they published this thing about how in Ukraine, the Azov Battalion and sort of its political arm, which is it's called the National Corpus, is sort of selling a, a translation of this Italian fascist, you know, man, manifesto. Man, and this guy's a kind of an old school fascist, all from the '60s. And he like might have said something about Putin, you know, that's like some could be could be um, interpreted as, as positive. Um, and so immediately the whole thing is about you know how the Ukrainian far right is publishing a Italian fascist that's who supports Putin. You know, it's like oh my god, yeah. So it's it's you know so even though there's there's uh, one guy in particular who does great work when they do do things, there are reports that come out um, by other people, and they always try to pivot it to again to give people this sense that again Russia is um, is you know like the somehow the the most important sort of party funding the right and look and the, the truth is that russia is does fund the right i mean the russia is extremely right wing the the ruling elite of russia really does believe that it's in, they inherited essentially the sort of russian empire you know that was uh that came to an end you know when the bolsheviks took power um and like you know destroyed it completely uh, and so they're 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 bringing it back from sort of the grave and re rebooting it. You know, it's like the Russian Empire 2.0, and they really it's it's part of the part of the state ideology, really. Um, and it does fl play around with far right, you know, groups and and far right sort of monarchist ideologies. Um, but at the same time, it's very uncomfortable with like actual Nazis and fascists. Um, and and a lot of those guys have either been jailed uh, leaders, uh, they've gone underground, or they actually moved to Ukraine. Uh, and 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 so some of the some of the biggest names in in the Azov Battalion, these Ukrainian Nazis, they're actually not Ukrainian at all. They're they're Russian, oh, wow. uh, you know. And so they're they're sort of ha hanging out there. And actually, it's funny. A lot, most of the Ukrainians, you know, fascists that want to you know reconstitute a Ukrainian you know ethnic state. I mean, you can tell that they're more comfortable speaking Russian than they are Ukrainian. You know, which is a uh, which is a particular, which is a whole different conversation in, in, in Ukraine where like everyone pretends that they're all, you know, Ukrainian patriots, but like they still speak better Russian than they do Ukrainian. <laughs> well, let's, let's talk about the uh, current hot news right now. Um, one of the most exciting topics actually happening at the moment, uh, the impeachment of Donald <laughs> Trump. And this, this uh, impeachment scandal is basically encompassing everything right right now but 
uh, not surprisingly, it goes back to Ukraine, you know, like everything for the, it just all these things is, it's almost like Ukraine is a, some kind of black hole, you know, it, it's in terms of our dialogue that sucks all these things back in eventually. So right now we're, you know, we're going through some of these, these little details about what happened, but beyond those. Do you watch this stuff? Do you watch I it? I tried. No, I tried, man. I mean, it's, it's, um, I, 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 it's, it's awful. I can't even, I can't, I can't imagine how anyone can do no, it. Too no, it's just, just the combination like my ears of bleed immediately and like, yeah, it's just, yeah, but it, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, no, yeah, it's well, okay. I mean, I, I just quickly commenting in that I, I loathe both sides of that debate so much that it's, God, it just it's makes brutal. it yeah. intolerable. I mean, hearing between hearing Adam Schiff and Nadler pushing oh. the cold war 2.0 pr- paradigm and then the Republicans, you know, using bizarre defenses that are really non-defense. They just want to bring it all back to Hunter Biden. It's just a mess. The whole thing is a mess. Very frustrating to watch, honestly. No, it's it's funny. Like, I, I, I was watching, okay, so the impeachment hearings in, you know, in, in, in Congress a little bit, you know, here and there. And, yeah, I mean, the whole thing is essentially, I mean, it's it, to boil it down to that Donald Trump should be impeached because he um, put on pause for, you know, a few weeks um, aid, military aid, so weapons deliver, you know, wep- fund, funding for weapons, right, uh, for Ukraine. Uh, and even though that money then was quickly released and, and there was not actually, there was no delay in the delivery of, the, of, 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 the, of this money to buy weapons, right? Um, and so he should have been impeached because he, uh, he sacrificed American national security and put America at risk because uh, the uh, timely delivery of those weapons is really important for American security. And that's because if America doesn't give the weapons to Ukrainians so that Ukrainians can fight other Ukrainians in Ukraine, Russia is going to come to America and destroy our democracy. That's basically the logic, right? I mean, the chain of logic that was aired time and time and time and time again, like just about every witness that was called up said something like that to Congress. And it was just like... Well, I mean, the weird thing is, including even the Republican witnesses, I mean, they were trying to make that case, too, that this this aid is vitally important and Trump didn't delay it, really. So they were, you know, they, it was almost like both sides were making the argument about the necessity of how important that aid was. And that was one of the most infuriating parts about it, because Abby and I were, were thinking, you know, if Trump had come out and said, look, I delayed this aid because I think it's dangerous to escalate <laughs> Cold War 2.0, we would have been like, Bravo. That's that's the right position to take. But instead nobody's taking that position and it's it's a bummer. No, no. And and you know, I mean Aaron Mate and others made a good point originally that it seems like a lot of this revolves around the idea that you know, you can't go after Joe Biden. It's like he's part yes. of the elite, so the fact that Trump tried to investigate him was a, a faux pas enough. You know, even if this didn't even revolve around Ukrainian aid, um, that could have sparked it. So there's a lot of layers to it, and I don't want to get too sidetracked because we only have you on for a little bit longer. But I wanted to t- I wanted to talk about this idea that beyond impeachment, um, the U.S. government has a disturbing history of meddling in Ukraine in general and treating it like this punching bag or this almost like a doormat, really, um, that goes far beyond Trump's election. And there is conclusive evidence also. Um, just going back into the current impeachment dialogue, that the DNC did seek out Trump opposition research from the Ukrainian government uh, leading into the 2016 election. Um, But 
Beyond impeachment, you say Ukraine has perhaps been more impacted by U.S. meddling than any other country in the former Soviet bloc, aside from maybe Yugoslavia. And I guess this is a perfect example of how much the U.S. has fostered far-right ideology in the name of democracy, considering what Ukraine looks like today. Comment on that. I mean, explain why you, you think Ukraine has been more impacted by U.S. meddling than, it, than any of the other former Soviet bloc countries. Well, yeah, well, because Ukraine is kind of stuck in, in, this partic- in, in, in a perpetual, <clears throat> like, early 1990s moment when, when, you know, it, when a lot of the Soviet states were at their weakest, right? When they, when they completely collapsed, they, there was no money, all the power kind of flowed to these oligarchic clans, and they essentially set policy, you know, according to their to to their whim and to their to the needs of their of their sort of of their business, right? They fought with each other. They sought, you know, Western intervention uh, or Western support. They they and so everything was revolved around the interest of a group of oligarchs in Ukraine and, and Russia has kind of was was like that really until, you know, and Putin after Putin came to power and sort of replaced this sort of fighting uh, bickering. Uh, Oligarchy with with an oligarchy of his own, which is a lot more stable, which was kind of um, under this sort of central control uh, that and, and that he wielded, um, and you know, and sort of he there was a, a kind of a loyal clique of oligarchs that began to run things and 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 stabilize the country. Obviously, enriched themselves obscenely, um, but at the same time, stabilized it on, on some level and 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 reconstituted some sort of you know, some sort of um, national interest, I guess you can call it, you know, which was, which is, Ukraine never went through that period of that stabilization period. And so Ukraine has been just sort of in this, in this chaos, uh, really, since the, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. And America has been, you know, used that chaos to its advantage. And so it's, it, it meddled from the very early days. Um, it, you know, helped write privatization laws and guide the privatization of the country. It, um, of course, uh, underwrote a uh, color revolution there, the Orange Revolution. Uh, it underwrote a kind of and, and, and aided another another color revolution, the Maidan Revolution, uh, that is just, just happened in 2014, uh, and that that led to a civil war. Um, it uh, America has sort of consistently backed and sided with the most reactionary and right wing and uh, sort of fascistic elements uh, in Ukrainian society. Uh, and has uh, ramped up uh, th- those elements and uh, collaboration with those elements to, uh, as a way of sort of uh, um, transforming Ukraine as a wedge uh, against Russia and to destabilize Russia by destabilizing Ukraine. Um, and so all this meddling has led um, sort of step by step to the situation which you know Ukraine exists in now, which is that in a, is, it's in a state of civil war. Um, there are just countless people, uh, you know, displaced by the war. Uh, you know, a third of the territory is sort of uh, split, of, split away from the country and under sort of this kind of strange rebel control. Um, and you have Ukrainians fighting against Ukrainians and Ukrainians killing Ukrainians. Um, and you have the, the rise of this really, of, of, in a way that it had never, it never been before, the rise of this fascist far right. Um, it is the most powerful force in Ukrainian society. It's the, the most powerful and the most organized political force in Ukrainian society today. Country, you know, parties and uh, organizations that are openly uh, fascistic and are you know uh, openly display Nazi symbols and are 
Nazi in in their ideology. Um, and so Ukraine is, and of course, is now one of the poorest co- uh, countries in Europe. Uh, meanwhile, Ukraine is an extremely resource-rich nation. It has an extremely fertile land. It's known as sort of the, was always known as the breadbasket of uh, Russia and the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. Um, uh, and it's you know it, it's plundered. You know it's uh, torn by war. It's torn by sort of these ethnic divisions and nationalistic divisions where Russian speakers are pitted against Ukrainian speakers, and uh, where the weaponization of language. Um, uh, is sort of an a, a daily occurrence. Uh, I mean, there's a there's like violence against leftist groups, against uh, L- LGBT groups. Uh, I, when I was there last time, I mean, I was told by people that you basically cannot hold any kind of event if you're even a little bit on the left, because it would be immediately shut down and, and mobbed by uh, fascist groups. You know, that's um, horrifying. Uh, you know, the vegan activists and uh, sort of anti. Um, Activists who are fighting against uh, sort of development and, and you know clear cutting of some of some forests of some local forests, and they were basically knifed and and uh, and, t- and attacked by um, you know a local uh, far right group and um, and uh, you know the, there was no the police would wouldn't do anything about it. Uh, you know these these people are fraternizing with the police. Uh, so there's it's like and and so this is just one uh, one. Uh, uh, instance of it but it's sort of that's happening all around the country or you have complete lawlessness and 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 um and uh sort of oligarchic plunder in a civil war and um and you know and the, the sad thing is that this is suits america just fine because the more unstable ukraine is and the more fucked up it is the better it is for american foreign policy as far as it's you know as far as the sort of american foreign policy political establishment sees it because the whole point is to destabilize Russia. I mean, this is the zombie sort of foreign policy, you know, that America has. You know, that's sort of this is the default position of of America, right? Uh, is sort of to destabilize Russia and to 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 make it into this kind of existential um, you know, enemy. And so, the more it's actually in America's interest to completely, you know, mess up and keep Ukraine messed up because it weakens Russia, and, and it's true. Um, to a large degree. Which makes it so much more horrifying that we somehow all agree, you know, like that largely the American public's just like, yeah, they need these weapons. And it's like, why are we giving weapons to a government that's condoning far-right Nazi elements to have this much power and to be controlling society in this way? It's just, it's absolutely ludicrous. And, you know, exactly. And I'll tell you this. So, you know, um, Earlier last year, um, Ukraine elected a new president. It's, they elected the first Jewish president in, I mean, in any in any country outside of Israel. So, um, and it's so it's weird. So you have this country that has a growing far right elects a Jewish president, um, and his he campaigned. He won with you know more than seventy percent of the vote, which is like you know for for Ukraine it's huge. I mean, I think it's for any country it's it's a, it's, a, it's a massive margin. Um, and his, one of his major uh, sort of made planks of his platform was to seek peace with Russia, to end the civil war, to end the war. Right. Uh, and so, I mean, this is something that gets completely uh, written out of the narrative. So the you see Ukrainian people, by a vast, vast majority, in pretty much every region in the country, except this tiny little uh, region on, in, the west, in, in the west side of the country, which is the, sort of the most nationalistic um, 
voted for a president that, want, that promised that he would end the war and end the suffering because everyone, is, everyone is, in Ukraine is tired of it. And, uh, and so instead, this, you know, this gets completely written out of the, the debate, it isn't talked about. Um, and in fact, what, the only people that are really opposing him in, in, in Ukraine, his attempts to broker some kind of peace deal with Russia, which is also backed up by the European Union, you know, these, these, these talks, um, are being opposed by the, the far right in Ukraine, right? They're accusing him of being, you know, basically a sellout to Russia, of being a Russian puppet, of selling out the country to Putin. And so they're staging these massive rallies. And so, um, and when, you, when this is covered, you know, in, in the American media, you, it's talked about like, oh, yes, you know, there's a massive rally against um, President Zelensky's attempt to seek peace with Russia, and he's being accused of being a traitor. It, no, it's very rarely mentioned that the people who are actually staging these rallies are fascists and are the far right. And so, and so you have, again, you know, American foreign policy completely um, um, in sync with the kind of the interests and, and, and the, the political demands domestically of these far right groups. And they are, you know, very frequently, you know, they, they, they work together. Um, they have the same aims. And so, they, you know, in Ukraine, far right groups are consistently America's best, best ally and have been since the end of World War II. And let's move on to Israel, which, of course, is another country where the U.S. has helped foster extreme right-wing ideology. I mean, this is perhaps one of the most stark examples of immigrants being exploited and weaponized for political gain, yeah. because the entire foundation of the country is built upon the weaponization of immigrants yes. and, and Jewish immigrants in particular. Um, just elaborate on that concept and how it fits into your series. Oh, yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, Zionism is an interesting thing, right? Because Zionism is essentially, a, you know, it's a, like a 19th century idea, you know, that, the idea that every peoples, you know, that every race should have their own nation. And that right. for, for a nation to flourish, you know, you must have your own territory and all this stuff. And, and sort of, um, you know, and it's... It's a weird idea because it's, it essentially encapsulates or, you know, it takes this argument, the kind of the anti-Semitic argument that Jews don't belong in our, you know, it, it very anti-Semitic sort of European argument uh, that, you know, Jews are a foreign to our countries. They don't, they can't, they, they shouldn't be here uh, because, you know, they're polluting our, whatever, our, our bloodlines and they're, you know, they're, they're fucking, fucking up our, the purity of our societies and, and the prosperity of our societies. And so essentially you know, embodies it and sort of and, and, and internalizes it and says, yeah, we agree, but we, we want to have also our own nation, a Jewish nation. And so Zionism is weird because a lot of Jews didn't support Zionism uh, in, the, you know, in mm-hmm. the 19th century and even early 20th century and all the way up to uh, the world, world War II. Um, I mean, it was, a, it was an extremely, uh, um, um, like, uh, you know, divisive issue in, in, in Jewish communities. Uh, and so a lot of Jews didn't support it. And in fact, I know that even the New York Times was anti-Zionist for a long time. I don't remember exactly when they switched oh, wow. their position, but I think in, in the, definitely in the 30s and even in the early 40s, I'm pretty sure that they were against Zionism. I, I'm, not, don't, I'm not sure exactly what time it was, but they were, I mean, a lot of people were anti-Zionist because it's, it wasn't, um, especially, and then of course, leftist Jews who were, uh, were very much anti-Zionist. They wanted to create, you know, Jewish, a Jewish, retain Jewish culture within the countries in which they lived. Uh, and so, so, you know, Zionism is this strange thing that really began to be, you know, legitimized after World War II in a big way uh, and really became a kind of a, in, in, in Jewish communities, um, became a kind of a orthodox way of think, looking at the world, right? 
um, that, you know, that it's, it, it became kind of ob- truism that, you know, just Jews needed their own state because look what, what just happened to them in, in, in Europe. Um, and, and so, yeah, I, I, you know, what's weird about it is that <clears throat> I was in Israel actually not that long ago and, and uh, my wife and I, we were, we were in, you know, in Israel and then we were in the West Bank and we were in Palestine and, um, and it's just, you know, Israel is a very Russia-heavy society. You know, like a third of yeah. the population is, like, made up of Soviet immigrants, uh, it's, which is a lot. You know, so when, we, when, you're, when you're there and if you speak Russian, it's like you almost feel like you're at home, you know, you're in Russia on some level because just everyone around you um, is, can speak Russian or, you know, every other, every, one out of three people can speak Russian around you. And so, and, and just the culture there is very uh, Soviet-like um, and it's just strange, you know, being there and realizing and then going to, going to the West Bank and, 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 um, and then seeing also sort of driving by some of these settlements where a lot of actually, uh, Soviet immigrants live. Um, it's just, it's, it's, yeah, it's, again, like you said, it's, 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 it's the embodiment of, of, of the weaponization of immigrants, uh, because you have, on the one hand, you have these Jews who are fleeing someplace, you know, to, for, you know, seeking refuge and they come to a place where they have to, uh, fight and, and wage a war against the local population in order to secure, the, in, in order to protect themselves from victimhood, right? And secure their own safety, they have to sort of beat up on someone else. And, 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 and to see that quite openly like that, you know? Um, well, considering how much the Holocaust is re-traumatized and used as a tool to help recruit, you know, Jews essentially to continue to move to Israel and generations later. Yes. It's just interesting that so many are Russian and from the Soviet era. I mean, how did that transpire where, where so many people living there are from Russia considering well, yeah. that Russia, you know, fought the Nazis? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's, look, it's, it's like, so, so when my family left, um, the Soviet union, we left on an Israeli exit visa. Um, so, most Jews that left the Soviet Union in the 70s and in the 80s, uh, and even like 1990 was the, was the very end of it, um, left on an Israeli exit visa. Uh, and so it would ha- because that's how it was sort of justified. It's like we're Jews, we're allowed mm-hmm. to go to, to repatriate back to our homeland, you know? Um, that's just sort of the deal. But then what, what, what a lot of Jews did and my, and my family did, my parents did, is that once we were out of the Soviet Union, we said, no, no, we don't want to go to Israel. Uh, we want to go to America. And so, and Israel hated that. Uh, Israel hated that. Uh, like, people like, people like us were <laughs> seen as traitors, essentially. Uh, because, you know, we were supposed to go to Israel to help bolster the Israeli state, right? And, and sort of, and to be the bodies that, you know, sort of made it stronger. Um, and, but a lot of, most Jews didn't want to go to Israel, actually. <laughs> because Israel was... You know, it's like you, you have a chance to go to a tiny little country uh, that's back in the, you know, in the 70s and 80s actually was very poor. Um, and only recently did it, you know, did it become this almost like an American, very Americanized and um, this has this almost American suburban um, culture. Back then, it was, a, it was a fairly, you know, it was like a, almost a very socialist actually, you know, had like a lot of um, um, socialist policies. Uh, it was poor. Um, and people didn't want to go there. I mean, America was the land of opportunity. That's pretty clear. And so, and so most Jews went to America. And so, uh, and, and Israel, 
you know, right. this furious uh, diplomacy and, and tried to America to actually shut off the valve and to, to basically not to take Jews. And they did all sorts of tr- tricky stuff um, for a while where they actually didn't even tell Jews that they had an opportunity to not go to Israel. Okay. So they like... So they actually just directed Jews immediately to, to like to their little compound uh, in Austria and immediately like whisked them away without sort of even telling them that they had the choice. And so, um, and so like that became actually a huge scandal and Golda Meir uh, like had to get involved. I think Austria even like uh, essentially booted out uh, Israelis, Israel's ambassador because of that, because when they learned that w- what was going on, it was like a big international scandal in the 70s. Anyway, so Israel wanted those bodies uh, and, and, and those bodies were leaving the Soviet Union on an Israeli exit visa. But those bodies were going to America, you know, those Jewish bodies. And so, um, but it, it, especially um, um, towards the end uh, of the Soviet Union, and actually right after we left the Soviet Union, uh, the Bush, uh, so President Bush, the, the senior, he actually reduced the quotas of Jews that were allowed to come to America drastically, right behind us, actually, right after we came. And from then on, like, all the Jews were immediately redirected to Israel. And so this huge wave of, of Jews came to Israel right at the end of the Soviet, right as the Soviet Union was collapsing. Um, and so that's how they ended up there. But even in the, even in the 40s, in the late 40s and in the 50s, American uh, Jewish political leadership, like, saw all the Jews in the Soviet Union as an asset and they wanted to get those Jews to come to Israel at some point. That was like a big, um, you know, national sort of security goal that Israel had uh, almost since its founding. And like I said in the beginning of our interview, like there was a special uh, intelligence agency created in Israel specifically to inflame sort of Jewish nationalism and Zionism among Soviet Jews. Fascinating. And... Yeah, and, 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 and so there would be like these tourists that would come, you know, Israeli tourists or Jewish tourists from, from America that would come to the Soviet Union and they would like, you know, in their suitcases would carry uh, Zionist literature uh, and they would carry Hebrew, um, uh, like sort of language books, you know, so that people could teach themselves Hebrew. Um, and these would passed out, you know, uh, and sort of, and then, you know, there were little, little, little circles would, would, would pop up all around the Soviet Union with, where people would... Uh, teach themselves, you know, Israeli history, Jewish history. Wow. They would study the, you know, the the Torah and the Bible. They would they would learn how to speak and write he- in Hebrew. So it was like a big um, kind of an identity politics movement in in the Soviet Union, where Soviet Jews are really into it. They're like, we're different. We're we have an identity. We're not just these sort of Soviet people. You know, we're special. Um, and that started happening in the 60s, uh, really sort of taking off. Mm-hmm. And Israel r- used that and helped also, you know, inflame it and, and, and sort of helped rev it up. And America did too. So there was a grassroots movement like that, like that in the Soviet Union, and both Israel and America helped to ramp it up and then applied diplomatic, diplomatic pressure in all sorts of ways to force uh, the Soviet Union to let Jews go, right? To, to, open, to open the doors for the Jews. And a lot of Jews left not because that they, were, they were being repressed or because they really cared about being a Jew or about their Jewish identity. They left because they wanted, um, you know, economic, op- or seeking sort of some sort of economic opportunities. Uh, especially in the 80s, the Soviet Union was doing, you know, the economy was doing really poorly. And, you know, anybody, a lot of people would have left if they, if they could, right? 
uh, would have left to just because things were so shitty. Uh, and so Jews left, not really out because of some sort of ideological reason, you know. Um, I mean, some did. Uh, there were a lot of people that did that were really ideological about it. Uh, but all that was mixed, intermixed with really people just wanted to leave because, you know, they're essentially like economic migrants, right? Uh, economic immigrants where they were seeking better uh, opportunities elsewhere. So that's it. That's, and, and, and that's how they ended up in the Soviet Union. Uh, and that's how they ended up in Israel. And, and in Israel, uh, I mean, I don't really know Israeli politics that well, but I know enough that, I know it enough that, you know, Soviet Jews represent one of the most right-wing currents in um, Israeli domestic politics. Um, extremely anti-Palestinian, extremely you know, supportive of, of, of war uh, against Gaza, you know, of basically ex- expanding settlements, of um, extremely militaristic. Uh, and, um, and at the same time, you know, they are actually, Soviet Jews in Israel are seen as, a, they're, you know, they're kind of discriminated against. You know, they are some of the poor, they're the, the, basically the poorest Jews. Uh, like, you know, because there's a lot of racism in, in Israeli society, as you probably know. Oh, yeah. You know, there's, you know, there's like a lot of racism against Ethiopian Jews. Um, they're the poorest Jews, uh, actually much more poor than, than the Soviet Jews. Um, and uh, they were seen in the 90s, the Soviet Jews, as you know, as basically moochers, as like welfare queens. You know, there was a lot of racist tropes against Soviet Jews. They, they just come here, you know, it, the government gives them everything. They don't have to work. They don't do anything. Sort of native Israelis saw them that way. Um, and yeah, I don't know. So, so there's, like, there's like a hierarchy of, of, of like the oppressed and the hierarchy of racism, right? So like the, the Soviet Jews are racist against Palestinians and they're racist against Ethiopian Jews. The Ethiopian Jews are supportive of Zionism in the state of Israel and serve in, you know, the IDF and serve in um, Israeli police forces and, and repress Palestinians, right? Then, you know, then you have like the Ashkenazi and sort of the older generation of, of European Jews who are racist against uh, Sephardic Jews, you know, kind of Jews from, 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 from like North African Jews, right? And are racist against... Uh, or bigoted against uh, Soviet Jews and bigoted against Ethiopian Jews. So there's like a whole hierarchy of racism within Judaism in Israel, um, which is fucking weird. I don't know. Yeah. It's, 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 a to- it's a totally, it, it's interesting in, 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 in a sense because it's, it also explodes the idea that, you know, Jews are like one people and one, and one you know, they must help each other all the time and that we are all, you know, our, all, I, our um, sort of interests are all aligned. So, like, nationalism and nationalist identity and sectarian identity is, like, weaponized in all these different micro ways, right. even if you just zoom in into that one little society um, in Israel, you know? Completely fascinating. Yeah, for, for me, Asha, one of the things that, for some reason, jumped into my brain when I was reading your, your series about this is how I was introduced to this concept of sort of the weaponization of this Jewish um, immigrant identity. And... It didn't even really occur to me until I started reading your series that one of the most, uh, one of my favorite films growing up actually as a child, and Abby, I remember Abby and I watched this many times, probably dozens of times when we were kids, the film American Tale. And once I started reading the synopsis of it, having not revisited it for 
many, many years and not really remembering the plot, it really stood out to me what the plot is. So this is an animated children's movie uh, made by Don Bluth. And it's the synopsis on Wikipedia says it's about a Russian Jewish family of mice who live with a human family <laughs> are having a celebration of Hanukkah where Papa gives his hat to a five-year-old son, Fievel, a mouse, and tells him about the United States, a country where there are no cats. The celebration is interrupted wow. when a battery of Cossacks ride through the village square in an anti-Jewish arson attack and their cats likewise attack the village mice. So they so basically this family has to flee to the United States and spoilers for anybody who hasn't seen it the movie ends with the Statue of Liberty winking at this family of mice that they have sort of saved them and given them a new identity here in the United States. Well, wow, a lot of dark undercurrents to that that I did not <laughs> get when I was a kid. So, so there, so there are no my, there are no cats in, in America, but just rats, though, right? Uh, yeah, they don't really clear. They don't really clearly explain which <laughs> ethnic group or political uh, my, group that the cats are supposed to represent. Um, but it's yeah, so it's it's kind of fascinating that this movie was obviously had some of this weaponized propaganda in it that you're that you've been describing um and that yeah. I just didn't have any clue you know until I was like oh wow this movie I remember this weird kids movie and it's really similar to what Yasha's writing about <laughs> and then there was this other you've you're already familiar with the comedian Yakov Smirnov who yeah. has a fake last name he apparently named it after the vodka company um <laughs> but uh yeah I mean those are two of my main examples of sort of the weaponization of this you know, Soviet immigrant identity. I don't know if you have any comment on that. I mean, if you do give us a comment on that, but I wanted to also ask you about when you started to become cynical yourself about how Judaism was being used or weaponized, uh, politicized for the benefit of the U S empire as a, as a Jewish Soviet immigrant yourself. Yeah. Well, you know, I haven't seen, I haven't seen American tale, but it seems like, so it seems like from, from what I, from what I just kind of looked up is that I should watch it. You know, one of the problems with being an, an immigrant, right, is again, like you, you, so I came when I was nine. And so the things, so I'm, I, came, I was born in 1981. So this came out like in the late eighties at some point, right? The, 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 yeah. So I should have probably, I would have probably seen it if I had lived here, you know, as, uh, but because I came as, and I was, I was, uh, when I was nine, I kind of missed all the stuff that kids my age had seen you know and so you 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 have this sort of whenever you come that you have that cultural sort of um black hole um and it's you know and it, i didn't really start to feel it until much later because i i still lived and and hung out uh with, with fellow you know immigrants in this in this kind of uh immigrant soviet immigrant ghetto in san francisco um not like a physical ghetto but more like a mental ghetto uh and so I, you know, I missed a lot of that culture. So, but I, but I should watch it. It looks pretty. It looks pretty good, actually. Um, it, it seems like they're running away from the imperial, so Russia, and like the pogroms um, at, at the end of uh, uh, at, at the end of the nineteenth century and the beginning of the twentieth century. They were pre- they were pretty bad. I mean, there was a big immigration out of this, out of um, Tsarist Russia uh, by Jews at that time. Um, so I, I, but I, so I don't know. I mean, was it was w- w- do you, do you remember it being essentially kind of like there were because this this was the Cold War and so they were conflating sort of the Soviet Union and Imperial Russia and showing that like that part of the world is about like you know um, exploitation or, or or persecution and and sort of evil evil forces and America is this land of opportunity and freedom. Well, there absolutely. Kind of simple, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's that's generally the plot of the movie, and the fact that it happened in, during the Reagan era, during you know the yeah. peak of sort of the later period of the Cold War. It's 
it's pretty evident to me, at least. You know, like I, if we watch the movie now, we would probably be like, "Wow, this is pretty wild." You know, that this, this pretty, was pretty <laughs> basic, yeah, yeah, kind of propaganda. Yeah. No, it's interesting, and and Yakov Smirnov is actually again like I only saw him essentially later on on YouTube. You know, no, I heard of him, <laughs> and like you, you, I'd see him. You know, before the internet, you wouldn't be able to see this stuff, right? Like it's hard. It was hard. It would be hard to see things that were shown on TV, but you didn't really see at the time, and so. I, I had known of him, and I'd see him every now and again, you know, reference to him, and I'd hear his jokes, obviously, but but I never actually like, you know, was exposed to him because he was big, right? You know, right when I came, he his, his I think influence began to decline because he was no longer needed because Russia was no longer Soviet, right? Um, and so his usefulness as a as as, as a comedian, like his currency, just basically declined. He became no longer uh, marketable. Uh, and I was actually looking. He's like he just got a PhD from uh, Pepperdine University in oh, psychology. Yeah, he's a doctor now. I just saw on his Wikipedia entry. So he was he like helped write um, speeches for Ronald Reagan, right? Did he? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's news to me. That's pretty funny if that's true. No, no, I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure of it. Yeah, and and so he was. You know, he was extremely. Again, it's it's he's a great example of it. Not only was he offering these sort of really stereotypical kind of. You know jokes and humor um, about the Soviet Union and how you know how fucking backwards it was, and how dumb everybody there was, and how repressive it is, right? Um, he was also you know very right wing and extremely he was anti communist, uh, and so you know and again he's he's a Ukrainian Jew, anti communist, uh, very much anti Soviet, uh, and you know he came here and obviously the thing that's marketable is this you know that's like there's a big demand for that kind of stuff for that material right uh, and 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 so he, he's such he's a perfect example i think of the wep- of the self-weaponizing immigrant in a way right it's like <laughs> no, no one's forcing him to do this stuff <laughs> right it's not like he's you know it's, self-weaponizing, he's self-weaponizing. <laughs> i mean in fact you see it now all the time i mean there's this you know there's this now with iran kind of you know uh, all the protests in iran right there's all these people that are suddenly po- you know their videos are going viral on on facebook and on on uh, Twitter, right, with like, you know, I am just a, a person from Iran. You know, we believe in democracy. And it's like, you look at them and there's some kind of lobbyist or, you know, someone who works for, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, for like the, the Persian uh, division of, of uh, US, the U.S. agency for, for, for global media. Uh, <laughs> and it's like these people are, you know, real Iranians, right? They really do hate, they do, they, for whatever reason, they're, they don't like uh, the government of their country, you know. And in America, they're calling for war, essentially, you know, against Iran, uh, against their own country. And it's like, yeah, these people are, no one's forcing them to do this, obviously. Uh, but, like, the market forces are such, right, in America, uh, that they are self, they're self-weaponizing, right? Uh, because, like, everything is geared for that. Like, you, all of a sudden, all sorts of opportunities open up. Um, you know, this is, it's why I have to, you know, run my project, for instance, right, on a Substack and ask people for money, ask people to pay for it, is because I'm not getting like a Brookings Institute uh, position, you know, writing about this stuff because it goes against, you know, I'm, I'm trying to like de-weaponize myself, actually. <laughs> uh, I'm like trying to de-mine myself, as, uh, you know, and, and I'm not trying to weaponize myself. And most immigrants come here and they are ready to be weaponized, they're willing to be weaponized because they they believe the things that they're saying on the one hand, and there's a great appetite for, for someone who is authentic, who comes from there, right, to speak the things that power 
believes, right? So it, 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 to speak the things that uh, the political establishment uh, uh, also thinks, you know, but to speak it with an authentic voice from that place. And so, I mean, you see it. I mean, you see, it's just, it's, it's, America's littered with, with these kinds of people, right? Um, it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of shocking, actually. Uh, but yeah, I mean, and I don't remember now what your other question was about something about. It was, how- it was when, when did you start to become cynical? yourself about the way that your you know immigrant identity just in a general sense was being weaponized like when did you become aware mm. of that and did that was that what is that a shift that occurred when you were when you were a lot younger like in your teens or how long did that realization um kick yeah. in yeah it's a good question actually i don't know if i have a good uh like i don't think i don't think there was a specific moment um I don't know. I, I I mean, as an immigrant, I for a long, long time, I pretended like I wasn't an immigrant. So like, okay, so for, for when I first came, I only was, you know, hung out with other immigrants like myself. So just there was a lot of Russian and Soviet immigrants that came to that ended up in San Francisco right around the same time that I did. And I ended up being friends with them in, in middle school and meeting like a, a clique of them in middle school in San Francisco. And then you know, from from then until college, that's you know, these Soviet immigrants are the only people that I really, really hung out with, and so I was insulated from American culture and American society, even though I lived in San Francisco. You know, uh, and so um, and so I I actually had made a conscious effort to break away from that from my commu- from that community because I began to realize like this is just something odd about this. Like I'm in America, but I'm just. I don't even know any Americans, really, you know, like uh, people who are not exactly like me. Um, and so, you know, we have we didn't really have to because our we had the same exact experiences. Um, you know, it was very comfortable for us to be around each other. You know, there was not like a cultural um, gap. Uh, we could communicate with each other very easily. And it wasn't necessarily that easy to get along with people who weren't like us. Um, and so I and so I kind of broke away from them and I pretended almost like that I wasn't an immigrant anymore. You know, I, I tried to be like. I just just a, an American, you know. I'm just just just, but you know, and that didn't really work. <laughs> but you know, I, so I, and then I kind of went back to trying to reconcile my immigrant identity. But it's pretty recently, actually. You know, it's it, as 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 kind of as um, I'd say in the last few years only uh, when I be, it began to really crystallize in my in my mind the, the the two parts of my identity and kind of trying to reconcile this American side and this Soviet side and uh, right. Um, and how those two things interact, and then placing that into a historical context. Um, that, like, that, that took a lot of maturity, actually, on, mm-hmm. on my hand. You know, I had to like, become, be really mature and also intellectually mature as well. So it, um, it's, it's, it's kind of embarrassing to say, because I feel like it's, it's very late in life um, that I came to this. But I'd say it's in the last three years, four years, that it really like began to be, you know, I, I I could, I could voice it, you know, and I could talk about it uh, clearly. It, it wasn't just like a vague feeling in, in, uh, somewhere somewhere there. So, yeah. No, I think it's really important for everyone to take stock of of how their identity is used for political gain, especially you know as Americans, of course, which is obvious. But I find it really fascinating. I think the project that you're doing is really important, um, and I really appreciate your contribution to explaining all these things, Yasha. Um, I wanted to close out the conversation going back to Russia, because when I last saw you, you were just telling me some really interesting things that I kind of wanted you to comment on. And and you can do it quickly. I know this is kind of a big question, but I was interested to learn that 
as you mentioned earlier in the broadcast, communism is pretty much dead right now. I mean, even though the Communist Party won a significant amount of votes in the recent election, like you said, it's communist in name only, despite polls uh, across the, the uh, across society discussing aspects of the Soviet Union favorably, Russia more reflects U.S. capitalism in recent decades, where everyone thinks that they can, quote, pick themselves up from their bootstraps, <laughs> you know, make their own businesses, become entrepreneurs. It's this kind of toxic individualism and neoliberalism manifesting there. Um, so just comment on just where Russia is at today and and you know, like also just how the sanctions have either exacerbated or impacted what's going on. No, yeah, look, I mean, Russia is, an, is a very, is a, yes, it's extremely capitalist. I mean, mm-hmm. so, so I mean, like, it is, a, it's, it's not, oh, sorry, I'm moving my mic away here. Um, it's, it's an extremely capitalist society, and it's the, the ideology that, that's sort of in people's minds, right? I mean, it is a strange mix of things. I mean, there is, on the one hand, especially in the older generation, a kind of nostalgia for the security and the stability and the kind of like, I don't know, like the, at least like a, a kind of a belonging or, or fitting into something um, that existed in the Soviet Union, right? Um, that you, there were clear boundaries, like, and also there was something to be against, you know, there was some clear, like, you know, like you could look point at where power was and you could be against that power, you know, mm-hmm. even, you know, so people even who were against the regime, you know, had like almost kind of a, it was, it was easy to, it was easy to, to have an identity there. And uh, of course, in, neo, in a neoliberal society, everything is cut up, cut up in all these different ways. And it's hard to get your footing on things because there isn't like a centralized force that's directing everything. So I think that there is a lot of some nostalgia, um, especially in the old generation about uh, the Soviet Union, of course, people who were sort of my age, you know, who were born in, let's say, you know, and came of age already uh, in capital in, in the 90s, you know, there isn't that nostalgia because that doesn't really mean anything to them. You know, the Soviet Union doesn't really mean anything. Um, and so, and and so, but more than anything, I think, yeah, the general, the, the, the general um, culture, the political culture in Russia is like thoroughly neoliberal. I mean, neoliberal to the bones, you know, and even if people aren't, don't think that they're neoliberal or even know what that means, that's what they are, you know, like they, it's a belief in uh, markets, a belief in the power of sort of markets to determine, to set value. It's the belief in sort of self-actualization, self-realization as the, as the, as the sort of the, the main way of, sort of living, right? It's the idea that everything is about your personal responsibility. It's the idea that, uh, you know, privatization is, is a good thing. It's more efficient than, than anything that the government or the public sector uh, can provide. Um, you know, it's all these sort of constellation of ideas, right, that, um, that are kind of neoliberal. And um, so, yes, uh, Russia is, um, I mean, you know, I don't know. I was talking to someone the other day, and they're like, but Russia has um, universal health care. Like, that's, they're, they're like socialists, right? Mm-hmm. I'm like, and so like, no, just because they have Medicare for all, right? <laughs> like, like, and so it's like, it's a very simplistic way of looking at it. Yeah, there's universal health care. I mean, there is, by default, if you uh, hurt yourself, uh, you know, and you, an ambulance will bring you to a hospital and you don't pay anything for that, you know. Uh, uh, but there's also a lot of privatized medicine and, and uh, the medicine that is sort of free and universal is subpar and it's 
not well dist- distributed. So places in like Moscow, the richer cities like Moscow or St. Petersburg will have better services. Everything else, you know, around the country is sort of gutted and, uh, and, and, and th- there isn't really much there, you know. So there's, but just because there's some things that are left over from sort of the, the, the socialist days or the communist days of the Soviet Union doesn't mean it's not a thoroughly capitalist society. Um, and of course, you know, like, I don't know, there's like a flat tax, you know, Russia has a flat tax, um, which is like the ultimate libertarian. Oh, wow, I did not know that. Yeah. Um, uh, and so, like, you know, so when I was there, for instance, just to show how, like, uh, how neoliberal the society is, like, when I was there um, this past summer, um, I, w- I, I, I saw the protest. There was, there was a, a protest against uh, sort of government meddling in, in, in the Moscow um, city uh, council elections. So some opposition candidates were essentially kind of booted off the rolls and they were not allowed to participate on some technicality. And that was basically bullshit. They were basically denied access to the election because the, local gov- the Moscow government was worried that they're going to win and they didn't want to share power. And so there were all these protests, right? But... Like and and the protest immediately devolved into being protest against Putin and sort of his ruling party and and so they became about Putin and when you go to these protests, um, like no one actually makes any political demands. Like there are no like political demands. It's just about removing Putin from power. It's about removing like Putin's people from power and putting in fresher, younger faces. You know that aren't corrupt. So it's all about like it has these. The slogans are extremely uh, superficial. There isn't an actual political program. And so you walk away from, this, from these protests and uh, talking to people who are part of the protest and the leaders and, and, uh, of these po- protests. You get the sense that it's all like about personality and, and about like, the culture of the people in power. So they want like, the, kind of the, the corrupt kind of hicks that, that are part of P- Putin's coalition that they see them as such out of power. And they want to put like younger sort of uh, more modern, you know, um, like people in power. But the policies that, that they are talking about don't differ in any, in any way from, from Putin's people. There isn't actually like any talk about, you know, ending oligarchs or like trying to, trying to curtail the oligarchy, right? Or trying to deprivatize, you know, America, Russia's vast resources, right? And putting them back into the hands of the people in some kind of way. There isn't an actual talk about economic programs or politics of any kind and so you go to these protests and it's all about like again it's all about personality and it's all about um um like you know how cultured people are essentially a a similar version that you see here between like the democratic party and the republican party you know it's all about like it's not really substantive in in, uh, on a deep level Mm -hmm. uh and so 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 these opposition movements in russia are also like very neoliberal in a sense that they are not, on, on some very basic level, they don't differ from Putin's, uh, Putin's coalition, right? Uh, and one of the biggest things that they don't challenge is the privatization of Russia's wealth. No r- major political party, no major uh, sort of opposition party talks about that. So, like, in Russia, if you really want to talk about politics, there's only really one thing that, like, that is the most important thing. And that's the way that the country was privatized. It was, didn't happen that long ago, right? It happened uh, in the 90s. And at that point, you know, Russia's vast wealth was privatized, right? And, like, 
no one questions that. So the opposition uh, to Putin doesn't question that. And that is where Putin gets his power, right? That's where, the, that's where the oligarchy in Russia gets his power. And Putin ultimately derives his power from the oligarchy that he, that he sort of stabilized. Uh, and, you know, in this, in this, vital, you know, this vital issue, which is about the, the looting of the country's wealth and the redistribution of it, isn't touched by opposition parties. And so, because they fundamentally do not disagree with it is, is, is sort of the point that I'm trying to make here. And, um, and so even the opposition to Putin is a very neoliberal opposition. Uh, and, you know, to your other point about, you know, what's Russia like after the sanctions and things like that? Well, in Russia, is like there's a, an, it's an extremely unequal society. So, um, generally speaking, the sanctions affected normal people kind of the average Russians in a bad way. Uh, wages have d- d- dropped. Uh, the costs for uh, life have increased because of the sanctions. On the other hand, um, it also spurred a kind of a, a you know, a, a economic boom in certain sectors where there's, there were, um, because things have been domestically produced, uh, because they're a lot more expensive now, because uh, Russia's currency is a lot weaker. Um, and there's all sorts of other sanctions on the country. Russia has said to sort of be, you know, like it spurred uh, the country's elite into actually like developing its own economy to some, you know, a little bit more than 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 they they, they, than they did before. So there is some some growth eternally. So actually, the sanctions have had a a kind of opposite effect on the economy um, on some level, which is that they've actually strengthened Russia's economy because they forced Russia to to develop things internally. Um, because they can't import them as easily, and then um, and then there's this other thing that's that happened um, after the sanctions, and uh, which I think is kind of interesting is that I think they in Moscow they've kind of strengthened Putin's elite, uh, the people that um, benefited the most from Putin's uh, time in power, a kind of a sort of upper managerial class, and and sort of this sort of uh, everything from the sort of upper managerial class. <clears throat> to the oligarchy and sort of everything in between, um, the sort of business elite, the Ru- Moscow has become like incre- incredibly gentrified. I mean, hyper gentrified. Um, whereas before, because because everything is more expensive and uh, Russia kind of turned more in- inward, Moscow has been developed because of the sanctions, uh, and, like in a way that it had never been, and uh, to the point where. A lot of Russians that have money don't feel like they need to like leave the country in order to go and kind of hang out at nice restaurants, whereas that used to be the case. You know, like wealthy Russians did not really feel that comfortable hanging out in Russia, you know, in Moscow without like security or without without being in sort of their comp their own sort of private compounds, but like going to nice restaurants or kind of even going for strolls, you know, in Russia that was like. Not that was kind of icky, you know. It was it was it was sketchy for for people with with money, um, and that's basically changed. Where Russia is now like Paris or something, or like or like you know, or uh, or uh, uh, Brentwood, I don't know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, where like you you have people kind of you know riding up to uh, like on a Bentley, you know, to a public playground and like going and like working out on the street, you know. Um, with like the commoners uh, and sort of, which is a totally, is a totally new development. I was shocked when I was there. Um, like, I mean, seriously, I would go out and work at workout in this, um, in this compound 
on, on, on the territory of this former Olympic, um, sort of Olympic compound where the Olympic Games were held in the Soviet Union. And I'd have like a car, a limousine, essentially pull up, a Mercedes limousine pull up with like, a, with like another car that, is, with, 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 that had a bunch of security guards in it. And that car would just kind of be parked, parked in the corner. And then these, these guys would come out and just, you know, do like an outdoor workout session. <laughs> you know, from their limousine. It's wild. Uh, and like, and like, I, I mean, I, this is just, it, it's, if you, if you know Russia, that just, it's, it's like, it's, that shouldn't have, that shouldn't happen. Um, because like to do that, to kind of hang out with the people, Russian elite would go to Europe. Like seriously, they'd go to Paris, they'd go to London and they're one, like kind of be anonymous there. And on the other hand, because they wouldn't feel under threat. Mm-hmm. But uh, Moscow has become so elite and so gentrified that the elite really are starting for the first time feel comfortable living in their own society, which to me, you know, uh, like is a sign that isn't like a sign that the, Russia is getting weaker. It's actually a sign that the elite are, feel, are actually like stronger than they ever were. Wow. And in part, that's because I think of the sanctions. Uh, um in part. Uh, and so, and so like, I don't know, I looked at Russia and I, I see a country that's actually in an elite that's actually m- more confident uh, in their own sort of country in their own society than, than they ever have on some level. On another level, of course, everyone in Russia is a cynic and thinks that everything's going to collapse tomorrow. And so everyone also has like, you know, EU passports that they bought for a million dollars in case, you know, things collapse and so they can like flee uh, in their private jets. So, yeah, I don't know. So Russia is an extremely um, contradictory place. You know, there's a lot of different things, but it is extremely neoliberal. It's extremely capitalist. Uh, and it's, uh, on the one hand, doing badly uh, after the sanctions. And on the other hand, it's actually doing, certain parts of the population are doing really well and are more uh, sort of uh, attached and are more confident in their society than they ever were before. So kind of proving the point that sanctions don't, in fact, hurt you know, who we're told that they're supposed to hurt designated. Yeah, to, they're supposed yeah. to. Yeah, they're supposed to right have send all these oligarchs fleeing basically. And, and right. Yeah. And 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 backstab basically stabbing Putin in the back and selling him out. I mean, that's the idea. Unbelievable. And it hasn't happened. No, no. I mean, it's it's yeah. I mean, there's there's definitely um, a lot of a lot of sort of liberal media types in Russia um, who uh, sort of pay attention to the news, you know, to, to American news and to American political sort of events. It's basically, basically journalists, you know, in Russia, uh, who are normally extremely supportive of America. They're pro-American. They're pro-Western. Um, have been like the, the RussiaGate stuff, right? And the, the blaming is years of now of blaming everything that's going wrong in America on Russia, right? And Russian interference has really turned a lot of those people against America and like against America's, you know, hallowed, hallowed institutions like the New York Times, you know, people, you know, Russian journalists Good. told me that they like, they used to see the New York Times as like this, you know, this, the pinnacle of journalism, you know. <laughs> Good. I'm glad to hear that. No. And so like, it's actually, so this Russiagate stuff has actually undermined uh, like America in the eyes of, of Russia's sort of liberal media class um, in a big way, in a major way, uh, like, so it's actually pretty interesting to see all this stuff is like it has it has these in the end it's having the effect of 
you know, pushing people away from from sort of the American um, from American values mm -hmm. and kind of having them see the underside of that. Now that you've done so much work on this series, and it's obviously um, a big focus of yours right now, where do you hope to bring this project next? And just generally, how can people support your work? And also, I uh, wanted to give you a chance to plug some of your newest stuff out and, you know, give a shout out to the film Pistachio Wars. Feel free to plug any of those new projects and um, tell us what's what's uh, in store for the future of your work. Uh, yeah. Uh, thanks, man. Well, uh, you know, people can support my work um, by, you know, going to my Substack uh, and subscribing to a newsletter. It's, uh, I mean, I, I'll, the plan is I, I'm going to be publishing two or three um, sort of historical pieces a, a month, depending on, you know, how involved they are. And so, um, and there's going to be some sort of public stuff that, that, that's available to everybody and some more of a subscriber-only um, posts. Um, so if they want to get that stuff they, and they want to support the project, you know, five bucks a month, I would really appreciate it. Um, and the, the URL for that is yasha.substack.com. Um, I mean, you know, for, 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 the, for the future of the project, I'm just going to try to take it step by step, you know, starting from the big end of the world, end of World War II and try to, you know, tell the story. Um, and it's a, it's a very complicated story. You know, it spans, you know, it's, I can, you can kind of zoom in on pretty much any country um, on Earth and really almost, you know, it, it, has, it contains its own specific kind of micro-universe about how, how America sort of attempted to weaponize nationalism in those countries to destabilize them and to, to fight communism. Um, um, but I'm just going to try to, you know, tell it serially as much as I can, focusing on, focusing on the regions that I know best, which are, you know, uh, regions from the former Soviet Union. Um, and so, you know, uh, th that's, that's sort of my, my plan. And uh, I don't really have a, a, a set schedule or something like that for, or um, set um, topics or, uh, that I'm going to sort of address or set little episodes. But they're going to be, I think they're gonna, people are going to be uh, kind of into them because they're going to be pretty unexpected. Um, yeah, and, you know, I've just been working on other things like Pistachio Wars, you know, the, the, my, the documentary that looks at these Beverly Hills billionaires, um, pistachio farmers, and who are he helping kind of drive war uh, with Iran. And, um, uh, you know, it's been in the works now for, I, I, it's been like, I don't know how many years, five years maybe, God. Uh, but, I, but I hope that it's going to be finished this year. Um, and so I'll, you know, I'll have more and more news on that later. Um, but, uh, but yeah, thanks for, uh, thanks for letting me plug my, my stuff here. Well, I hope it, I, I hope it. you turn this whole series into a book eventually, because <laughs> it is incredible. Um, and the timetable is just really interesting. Everyone check it out. Yasha.substack.com. Check out surveillancevalley.com. Another mind blowing book that everyone should read and support Yasha's work. Uh, Yasha, do you have a Patreon going? You said no, it's just on Substack. Got it. So got it. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Everyone. I'm a Substacker. You know, yeah. I'm not a Patreon. <laughs> we we have there's, there's there's different classes of, of people who beg for money on the internet. You know, I'm a Substacker. Yeah. And uh, and uh, Yasha's Twitter account may not be around forever, as he was just suspended for making a sarcastic comment about killing Russians on Twitter. But you can temporarily, for the time being, follow him at Yasha Levine on Twitter. We got to keep having these conversations, man. We're in the same yeah. city, so at least we have that. <laughs> I got to find out where you live. Yeah, we in can case. drive over to each other. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in case shit shuts down. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Thank you so much, Yasha. You're amazing. It was such a fascinating conversation. I really appreciate all your insight. Oh, thanks for having me on. It's appreciated. Thanks so much. Yeah, right. Yasha, please come back on sometime in the future, in the near future. Anytime. We yeah. love having Anytime, you. Anytime, yeah.